Well, we like to start our services on Sundays to say welcome to anybody. If you're here in our room for the first time joining us, or if you're joining us online for the first time, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. This morning, oh, I am Pastor Nathan, by the way, for those of you that may be new, and this morning, we are coming to the description of the end of the world. I did not want to open this study by saying today is the end of the world because considering uh, what's going on in our world, that uh, might scare some. So, But we're coming to the description of the end of the world in our study of Revelation. You know, for some, for some of us, it might be easy to think as we go through life in this world that, you know, if if people just saw enough miracles, if people just saw enough signs and wonders, that of course they would be converted, right? Many of us have had experiences with God in our own personal relationship, and we're like, wow, this is just, just mind-boggling and, and so definitive for me, and if someone else just had this experience, they might immediately come to know the Lord, but sadly, we know that's not true. We even know in the Gospels that people saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and they still did not believe. You know, in the tribulation period specifically, and we've been studying this in the book of Revelation, that people will see so much miraculous activity, both divine and demonic, and many, and yet many will still follow Satan, still follow the demonic and reject God at this time. Well, today, we are going to look at the last of the last judgments of God in the context of Revelation. We've been looking at all of these judgments through this book as God has given this vision to John the Apostle, laying out what the end times will be like, a time period that Jesus described as the worst period in earth's history. It's called the tribulation period. The last three and a half is specifically referred to as the great tribulation period, this whole time is referred to as the day of the Lord. There's, there's many other titles for it. And we've looked at the seven seal judgments. We've looked at the seven trumpet judgments. Last week, we took a look at the first five bowl judgments. And now we've come to the very end of this seven-year period known as the tribulation time, the final moments before Jesus returns again. And so the last two bowls we're looking at today, the sixth and seventh bowl judgment, set up a war, a final war that is coming between man and God, where God is going to just finish it. He is going to say it is done, and it is going to be God's final judgment upon the sin of mankind and their rejection of him. And then we're also going to see what looks to be a renovation of the face of the earth. A picture, if you will, of Jesus taking back the property that belongs to him, doing some intense demo, and renovating the place in preparation of his millennial kingdom. Collectively, these two last two judgments are the end of the world as we know it. But we're going to pray first because I always like to pray and glorify God and think of him and who he is and what he's done before we get into these very heavy, heavy teachings about what's to come upon the earth. God is worth our worship he is worthy, he is almighty, he is just, he is holy, he is righteous, he has so many wonderful things, and he deserves our praise, amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. 
God, it has been a difficult and a tough study as we've been walking through Revelation, seeing what is to come upon the face of this earth for those who reject you. God, we're living in a time right now as things are unfolding in our world that are very compelling in the picture of end times teaching and what is to come, Lord. But God, despite what is happening now, despite what has happened in the past, despite what is to come in the future, you are still God. You are still almighty. You are still holy and just. You are true. You are right. You are love. You are light. God, you are perfect. And Lord, we can trust you in all things. We can trust you in all ways, Lord, because we know that you are in control of everything. And so we trust you, God. Lord, today as we come to study the the final two judgments that are going to effectively end this era of earth's history, God, that are going to bring to a close this time before your coming reign upon this earth. Lord, I pray, God, as we look at the devastation that is to come, as we study, Lord, the picture of, of what is going to be poured out and the destruction and the death that is going to come with it, Lord, God, we would again be reminded, Lord, of how you feel about sin. That sin is serious. That sin kills that sin destroys. And Lord, that even means that those who persist in sin and reject you to the day of judgment, it'll be because of their sin that they are destroyed. But Lord, we still have time on this earth now to share the truth and the hope, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, encourage us, God, as we look ahead what is to come, let it be a motivator to us that are here now to share truth with people, to share the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And God, those of us that know you, we have so much to worship you for, and we have so much to praise you for, because you are so awesome. And so God, we worship you now in preparation of today. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 12, as we are looking at the final two bold judgments at the very tail end of Revelation. So read with me Revelation 16, verse 12. It says, the sixth bowl... The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. This brings us to what is known as the end of the world, the end of all things. We've been studying through Revelation, looking at this time frame as God has given it to John the Apostle, and we've seen a lot. And we've touched on many times through this, and I fully acknowledge that there are numerous different interpretations of what these events mean and how they unfold, and I respect all those different interpretations as I ask you to respect mine and the interpretation of this church. As we have been studying through Revelation, we see Revelation as a chronological telling of the judgments of God during the seven-year period. Seven seals followed by seven trumpets followed by seven bowls. 
We have seen similarities in these judgments, but we've also seen these judgments um, have many differences and have seemed to escalate as God is ever increasingly pouring out his judgment on the earth, all with an eye to getting people to realize he is God Almighty. They are sinners, and they should turn to him. And yet, sadly, as we've seen throughout Revelation, many continue to dig in their heels and blaspheme the name of God knowing it is God pouring out these judgments and yet refusing to bow the knee to him and unfortunately then falling under ever-increasing judgment. Well, as we get here to this sixth bowl, it starts out with telling us about this great river Euphrates. And this isn't the first time we have seen this river specifically mentioned in Revelation. The last time was back in Revelation chapter 9 where we were in the trumpet judgments and we read about these four demons that were bound at the great river Euphrates. The word it uses there is angels, but the word simply means a supernatural being. And so they're fallen angels that were um, incarcerated there, but it says that they were there bound and prepared for a certain time. And at that time, they were then released as part of that judgment where they went forth with an army of 200 million and were allowed to kill one-third of the human population on the planet. That was the first time we read about this river in Revelation, and now we read about it again. Um, and the reason is because the area of the river Euphrates is, is a very important area biblically. Um, we do know, going back to Genesis and stuff, that the River Euphrates, the area of this river, is where civilization began on earth. The Euphrates River is called the Great River. It's a famous river. It's a historical river. And it was originally the eastern border to the promised land that God had given to the children of Israel. Now, Israel never actually took all of that land, but it was the land given to them. And the Euphrates River was the eastern border. It was also, incidentally, the easternmost border of the Roman Empire at its height. And that's just an interesting detail because we see in the end times prophetically that there is a one-world government led by the Antichrist, and many refer to this one-world government as a revived Roman Empire. And so again, we see um, this area of the world that has been a part of so much in history brought back into the picture. This river's region of the world has also been the source of all kinds of strange and, and, and just, just weird wickedness from the very beginning of history. We do know that somewhere in the area of the Euphrates River, in a delta that was formed by the Tigris and Euphrates, was where the Garden of Eden was uh, located. This garden was the garden that was infiltrated by evil Satan himself. This garden area was where the first sin was committed where the first lie was told, where the first murder was committed, where the first grave was dug. This area of the Euphrates River has been a significant problem area for mankind from the very beginning. It was where Nimrod defied God, rebelled against God, we read about in Genesis, and really rallied together a, a, a precursor of a one-world religious movement as he gathered everybody together and said, we're going to build a tower that's going to reach all the way up to the heavens, and they started building what was called the Tower of Babel. And you know it was then that God then struck down a little judgment upon the people and confused everybody's language, and then pretty soon nobody knew how to talk to each other, and they scattered. The Euphrates region, region historically has also been the location of some of Israel's most oppressive enemies. It's where the Ninevites came from, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medo-Persians, 
cultures that feature prominently in the eschatological, prophetical look of what's to take place in the end times. Essentially, it's where world history began, and it's going to be where world history has its end. Now, why does this river need to be dried up? It tells us right there. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. That was why. Now, the Euphrates River in some places is 3,600 feet wide. That's a big river, okay? Um, in some places, it's anywhere from 30 to 60 feet deep. To give you an idea, from the floor to this ceiling here is about 30 feet. So double that, and that's how deep the Euphrates River is at certain places. That's really, really deep. Now, it's dried up so that these kings from the east can come across it. Now, the big question is, is who are the kings from the east? Nobody knows, right? There's a lot of ideas, but it's one of those things in Revelation where we say nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows for sure who the kings from the east are. Now, if you look at the geographical map and you look east of the Euphrates River, you're going to find India, China, Pakistan, North Korea, Japan, and many others. Collectively, this area of the world, however, east of the Euphrates River, holds the greatest percentage of the world's population that exists today. And this area of the world also possesses some substantial military might. So we don't know exactly who they are, but whoever they are, they're going to march, and they're going to march west, and they're going to march over what is a dried-up Euphrates River coming into what is the land of Israel to attack Israel and to attack, attack Jerusalem. But for those of you that like to conjecture about things, you know, when it says kings from the east, that word east literally means rising sun. That's what the word means. So it's literally the kings of the rising sun, are going to march. Now, some people go, well, that's describing the, the Asian nations uh, of the East there. That's, that's describing places like communist China. And so some think that the kings of the East is referring to communist China that is possibly going to ally with Japan. And for those of you who don't know, Japan's flag is the rising sun, right? So some people make connections like that. We also know that it could be the Muslim nations that are marching because they hate Israel. And there's Muslim nations over there east of the Euphrates. Um, we know that China has actually supplied many of those Muslim nations with weapons. So it could be Iran. It could be Pakistan. It could be India. It could even be Afghanistan because our country was kind enough to donate to them millions of dollars of very high-end military technology when we botched leaving that country a few years back. But the point is, is that there's going to be nations, kings from the east, leading their nations towards Israel. And some of these nations might think at the time that this river dries up, look, what a miracle. Our gods have provided a miracle for us so we could finally go destroy Israel the way we want to. But it's the true God actually setting a trap and leading these nations to the slaughter. If you look in verse 13 of Revelation 16, it says, Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirit, spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole earth, the whole world. So it's not just the kings of the east that these spirits go to, but the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on that great day of God, the Almighty. So again, these, these kings, these world leaders, whoever they are, 
they're deceived by demonic spirits, and they're deceived by a really interesting vision here. It says these demonic spirits that look like frogs are coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, the antichrist, which is the beast, and the false prophet. These spirits are coming out of their mouths, and it says specifically that these spirits are able to perform signs. That means to perform miracles or apparent miracles, and these miracles, these signs are then convincing these kings, these leaders of the world nations to come together to attack Israel. Now, you know, I read stuff like this, and I just think, poor John, he had to see some really weird stuff in this vision God was giving him, some really strange things that, that he had to look at, and then in his vocabulary, he had to figure out a way to describe some of these things to write them down so he could pen this letter as he was directed to do. And so he says that these spirits, they, they look like frogs, right? They look like frogs. Now, frogs to ancient cultures, many ancient cultures, were disgusting. Frogs were a picture of a gross, slimy, foul thing. That was the picture. I know some of you today, you like frogs, and you think, oh, they're so cute, and you see the cool little cute pictures of frogs, and, and yeah, that's fine, but, but in ancient cultures, many people thought frogs were, were foul. They were representative of something disgusting. In fact, to the Jewish culture specifically, and to the Persian culture, frogs were specifically considered unclean and defiled, and so touching them or having any interaction with them would, would make one unclean and defiled. But it says these frogs came from their mouth. And so what we see as a picture here is this disgusting, unclean, defiled, demonic something coming from their mouths. Now some people look at this and they see it uh, very specifically as metaphorical. And so the idea that this is coming out of their mouth, they go, oh, well that, that's referring to the speech, the, the things they are saying. And we've seen that picture earlier in the description of the Antichrist and the beast that, that they can have this, this evilness come from their mouth. And it was a reference to the, the wicked words they would use, the oratory they used to manipulate people and to um, uh, get the world to do their bidding. And so some go that's disgusting, unclean, defiled, demonically inspired speech. And of course, as we've seen in earlier in Revelation, that the source of this demonic power and influence is Satan himself. We saw earlier that it was Satan pictured as the great red dragon who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. He gave authority to him and the false prophet and, and, and through them was, was given them the ability to perform signs and miracles. And there is some conjecture on whether they were false miracles or actually real miracles that got allowed. But the idea is that, that these signs performed um, and, and the things spoken by the beast and Satan and the false prophet are, are, are influencing the rulers on the earth towards Satan, towards evil, towards wickedness, and ultimately are going to influence them to march upon Israel and Jerusalem. But it specifically says that these demonic spirits performed signs. So... Um, it could also be that there was actually some demonic spirits that kind of came out of their mouths, flew out of their mouths, were called forth, called into being uh, by, the, by Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. They were manifested, if you will, and these spirits actually were spirits out there performing signs and wonders to deceive these kings. Now, when you think about that, you know, we, when we look at some of the atrocities that have happened on our planet, perpetrated by governments and government leaders, and many atrocities that are still happening worldwide today. We see things like child trafficking and organ trafficking and just some foul things that are perpetrated by those that, that have the power to, to do what they want or at least what they think. 
it's hard not to consider that there are indeed many rulers and governments that are truly demonically controlled today, that have demonic spirits behind them, influencing and manipulating them. I mean, today, when we look at um, a, a, an entity like Hamas that would butcher babies and, and, and decapitate babies out of hate, I mean, what pathetic cowards they are. And yet it's their leaders that would lead them to do these horrific things. And then, I mean, we could even go back further, and we see it worldwide in, in our country, you know, you have government officials, even in our country, primarily from one political party that really aggressively want to advocate for murdering babies in the womb all the way up into the moment they're born. And they want to call that health care. And you look at stuff like this and you go, yeah, demons are behind some of this evil and this wickedness that exists in our country today. But look at verse 14. It said, these spirits traveled to the kings and assembled them for battle. Now, we're going to come back to verse 15, but if you jump up to verse 16, it says, So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So these kings and their armies, they, they come into Israel into a very specific place to fight against Israel, whom Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet hate. We've looked at that when we looked at the, the woman that was being persecuted by the dragon and we saw that as a picture of Satan just being against God's chosen people, Israel. That you go all the way back through the history, God chose a people group, Israel, to, to enact his plan through. And they have been far from perfect. They have sinned greatly in so many different ways, but still it was God's sovereign choice as he chose this people to work in and through them, to send the prophets through. And then the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, not just Israel, was born through that nation of people. And then Satan trying to stop all of that through the Old Testament and ultimately failing as Jesus came to the earth and was born and lived and died and then said, okay, well, I'm just going to oppress this people because there are prophecies that are yet unfulfilled that, that pertain specifically to the people group, the nation of Israel and the Jews. And Satan's like, if I could wipe out that nation, if I could destroy that nation, well, then God can't fulfill his prophecies and ha-ha, God's a liar. And so the persecution and the anti-Semitism that has, that has been prevalent throughout history is, is, is just railing today. And yet we know that there is a plan. And so Satan hates Israel, hates the Jewish people, simply because they are God's chosen people. But in verse 16, as they are assembling to this place called Armageddon, it's not just a fight against Israel. It's a fight against God. It's war against God, which is really the foundation of mankind's problem in our sin. We're in a war against God. And we've already seen throughout the book of Revelation, especially by this time at the very tail end of Revelation, the world has already acknowledged, the unsaved world has already acknowledged, we know that these judgments are coming from God Almighty. They're, they're acknowledging it. There's, there's a place now where people are like, God is real, and I still hate his guts. And so they gather together. What deception to think that they could defeat God, right? These spirits go forth, and whether it's actual spirits or just words spoken, but these people go, yeah, yeah, we should gather together. Let's get our military might together. Let's get our nations and our militaries together. Because we could defeat God. 
Really? He just, he, he's, the ocean's gone. It's, it's all blood. Yeah, but whatever. We could still fight him. We got, we got bullets. Pew, pew. He, the, the, the sun burned out. Yeah, but, but we have missiles. I mean, it's like deception to think that they could defeat God. And what deception to think that mankind would ever have enough power to finish off the Almighty. But Psalm 2 anticipated this. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. And that's why people rage against God. They think when God says, hey, don't do this, it's bad for you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your family. It's going to hurt your friends. It's going to hurt your kids. And people go, how dare you try and put chains upon my however I want to live? And that's the nations raging against God. Don't tell me what to do. And God's like, I'm just trying to tell you what to do so you're happy and healthy and blessed. Don't dare tell me what to do. And so they have this idea that they're going to come against them, and it was spoken all the way back there in Psalms. And so Satan, knowing that Jesus' second coming is close at hand, right here at the very end of tribulation, through the deception of the Antichrist and the false prophet and these spirits, he brings the military might of the world together to gather in Israel, thinking that they will indeed overcome God. And we see a picture of the mindset of them at the time when we jump forward to Revelation chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. This is what God says. He goes, these have one purpose, speaking of the nations of the world, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he's the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. And so the nations of the earth think we're gathering together, we're going to come and defeat God, we're the ones doing this, we're the ones initiating this, we're finally going to cast off the yoke of God and his religion, but Zechariah gives us a, a picture of this from God's perspective. It says this in Zechariah 14.2, I, God speaking, will gather all the nations against Jerusalem from battle. Who's doing the gathering? God's doing the gathering. It's a trap. And then verse 3 of Zechariah 14, it says, Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. And so this is all a part of God's plan. This is all a part of God's will. And God will stand against them. God gathers them together, and they will lose. They will lose. So we'll come back to verse 15, but in Revelation uh, 16, 16, again, it says, they assembled the kings at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. This is what the whole sixth bowl is about, is this battle. Now, Armageddon, it's a word we've spoken out before. It's a word that, that conjures up, you know, maybe images of, of end-of-the-world movies we've seen, right? Remember back in 2012 when everybody was convinced the Mayan calendar is right, and so there was that movie that came out, and, you know, I, I've always been a fan of apocalyptic movies, you know, way back in the day, Mad Max, you guys remember that? After nuclear war, and there's a guy running around, and it's like, you know, everything got destroyed but black leather outfits, I guess, you know? And... <laughs> You know, and I've always been a fan of like, oh, what, what would it look like? What could it be after that, you know? And, and, and God's like, I, I, here you go, revelation, right? So, um, but Armageddon, it conjures this idea. The word Armageddon, actually the original language is Har-Megiddo. And so the word means in the original language the mountain of Megiddo, okay? 
Um, now, there's no real mountain there in Megiddo. There's a hill, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. So it's the mountain or hill of Megiddo, or it could also be translated the mountain of the plain of Megiddo. And so if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Israel, one of the stops on Israel trips is what you see there. That is the hill of Megiddo. That is the archaeological dig, the ruins. That is the city of Megiddo. And that valley you see past it, that is what is referred to as the Valley of Armageddon. It's this large flat plain that lies next to the hill of Megiddo. Now, this area um, is 60 miles north of Jerusalem, and today, as I said, it's an archaeological dig. And what they have found uh, as they've dug into it is there's actually like 20 or so cities that have been there at different times, one built on top of the other. And so this hill serves like as a lookout over this huge valley, which is actually the meeting of two valleys there in Israel. One is called the Plain of Esdraelon, and the other is called the Valley of Jezreel. And this whole valley, this huge flat area, is what's referred to as the Valley of Armageddon. Now, if you visit there today, you'll notice that this valley is, is just very beautiful. It's filled with fruits and vegetables and farms and homes. I mean, it's a really beautiful thing to look out upon, but historically, it's often been a battlefield. 200 or so different battles have been fought in that valley called the Valley of Armageddon. Pharaoh has fought there. Lord Allenby of the British has fought there. Samson defeated the Philistines there. Titus, the Roman general, fought there. The Crusaders fought battles there in this area. Shenachara of the Assyrian fought there, Antichios Epiphanes, who is the precursor to the Antichrist, he fought there. There's a whole bunch of people that fought battles in this valley. In modern times, it was the site of battles in World War I. It was the site of much fighting in 1948 in the Arab-Israeli War. Napoleon, who's, who's thought to be one of the most brilliant um, tactical minds of, of, of history said that this valley is the most natural battlefield that he has ever seen in the entire world. This valley that's up there has been the site of so many great victories and great tragedies for Israel. In Judges chapter 4, it was the site of Barak's, Barak's victory over the Canaanites. In Judges chapter 7, it was the site of Gideon's victory over the Midianites. You remember that story, right? God said, hey, Gideon, go to battle. And he's like, all right, I got this huge army. And he goes, there's too many people. I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, their army's bigger. Yeah, yours is too big. And he whittled it down, whittled it down. He said, okay, now it's like, what, 300. Go fight. <laughs> okay, Lord. So you're going to, like, go out there and do a thing, right? Nope, you're going to go, and you're going to follow my really weird instructions. And it defeated everybody, right? Great victories. But... In 1 Samuel chapter 31, this is where this valley is where King Saul and his sons were killed. In 2 Kings, um, it was where King Josiah was defeated and killed. And so um, it's a place of, of battle historically, great battle. And so the, the kings of the east, it says, they'll, they'll, they'll come to this valley. The nations of the earth will be, will be gathered into this area. But when it says the battle of Armageddon, it's not just referring to all the fighting being in this battle. This, uh, this valley here, this valley is representative of the larger battlefront that is the entire nation of Israel. And we know that because in Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, it told us that the battlefront will encompass 180 miles. Remember, it said that the blood will rise to the bridles of the horses for 180 miles. 
180 miles is incidentally the measurement of the entire nation of Israel north to south. So the entire nation is going to be a site of fighting. And so the scope of that measurement in Revelation 14 tells us that the battle of Armageddon, or at least it tells me the battle of Armageddon is not just one battle, but it's a series of battles. It's a campaign, if you will. It's a, it's a series of fights collectively known as the battle of Armageddon. Now, in Revelation 19, we're going to look at great detail at the conclusion of this battle, where we're going to see the kings of the earth under demonic influence gathered together for this all-out attack. And we're going to see the Antichrist leading the charge of this attack. And then there we're going to see that Jesus then returns with the armies of heaven, standing down on the Mount of Olives, where he will once and for all defeat the forces of evil, cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, and that'll just be a really graphic picture of his full, the full execution of him trampling on the great winepress of God's wrath as he finalizes it and puts it to an end. After that, we're going to read about Satan being bound for a thousand years, imprisoned into the pit. And during that thousand years will be the millennial kingdom of Christ where Jesus will be here on earth reigning for a thousand years. It's going to be a horrific battle, though. It's going to be a war to end all wars. It's going to be gruesome. It's going to be horrific. But it's a part of the judgment of God as he has continually put out, hey, I will save you if you call out to me. That does mean obedience to God. That does mean living his way. That does mean living according to his word. It does mean acknowledging God, you're God, you know best. But people will refuse that. They say, no, we want our sin. We want our depravity. We want our whatever and they will stand against God. But that all brings us to the seventh bowl, the wasting of the earth or the renovation of the earth, depending on how you look at it. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17, it says, Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake occurred. Now, we've, we've seen this type of stuff in a few different stages of Revelation that, that when God is, 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 is escalating things, taking the next step, we see this noise and this commotion and this voice coming from heaven. And so it goes on to say that there was a severe earthquake like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake telling us that, that this particular quake is not like any other earthquake that has happened. There have been other earthquakes in prior judgments, but right here it's saying this quake is unlike any that has happened in prior judgments and at any point in history. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence, and we'll look at Babylon in greater detail in Revelation 17 and 18. It says, he gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people. And they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. Now that is a very brief synopsis of the end. The end of the end. The end of the world. The moments right before Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. This is the last final plague, the seventh, seventh bowl. And you'll notice there it says that the angel poured it out into the air. Some read that to say that this is a very direct, focused judgment against Satan because the Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 
And so they go, this is, this is a metaphorical judgment against Satan. Um, it could be that, but as we read it, this judgment of, of God's wrath being poured out into the air results in a series of very real physical cataclysms in the atmosphere and cataclysms on the earth itself. And so um, it could be both, right? It is judgment against Satan, but it is also a, a final judgment upon the earth and those upon it. Now, every natural disaster that has ever happened up to this point, every earthquake, every hurricane, every everything, um, every tornado, every disease, every plague, all of that, um, all of that were just warnings, if you will, of what God will do in the end. They were just samples, if you will, precursors to what God's going to do in the end. And you'll notice there that after this bowl is poured out, God says, it is done. It is done. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? You remember when Jesus hung on the cross and the full wrath of God against sin was placed on him? What did Jesus say? It is finished. It is finished. The seventh bowl, it's at the end of the world, and God is pouring out his full wrath on sin. Again, if you want to look at it that way, and he says, it is done. It's interesting, you go back into the Gospels and you see when Jesus said it is finished, there was a local earthquake. Here, when God says it is done, there's a global earthquake. The judgment on the cross brought grace into the world. It brought the opportunity of salvation for everybody. That the price had been paid, the atonement had been laid on the altar, the lamb had been slain, and now through faith in his shed blood, salvation was attainable for everybody. Not a temporary salvation where you would have to come back next year and make another sacrifice, but no, a permanent salvation. Cleansed. From that point forward, every sin you've ever done and every sin you'll ever do is paid for by the blood of Jesus. What marvelous grace was given to us in that moment. And from that point on, when people would look to the cross and say, yes, I'll let Jesus take my sin, the punishment for my sin. I will trust him to be my savior. I will let God's full wrath fall on him for my sin. I will believe in him. Take him as my Lord, follow him. When people have done that, from then until now, they're making the wise choice. They're making the right choice, the best choice, but the wrong choice is, and always has been, to refuse him, to harden your heart, as many will do in the end times as we've been seeing, and many do today, and end up facing judgment on your own without Jesus as your advocate. That's the wrong choice. But either way, whether you choose to let Jesus take the punishment for your sin or you choose to take it upon yourself, it will be finished. It will be done. The matter will be settled. Somebody will pay the price for sin. It can either be Jesus on your behalf or it could be you. And that's really the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? We've sinned against God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing we could do to pay the price. There's nothing we could do to atone for our own sin. We try. We, 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 we 
try and, well, I'm a good person. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. You know, and God always responds to us, that person isn't the standard. I'm the standard. And we think, well, I only told a little lie. It's still a lie. I didn't rob a bank. I just stole a ream of paper from work. You're still a thief. I'm not actually cheating on my spouse. I'm, spouse. I'm just watching pornography all the time. Jesus said, you lusted in your heart. You've committed adultery. We've all sinned. And God has been trying to get the world to understand that I have to judge sin because I'm holy and I'm just and I'm righteous. I can't just turn a blind eye and let it go. And some of you in this room today, maybe watching online today, you're, you're going, well, God hasn't judged me yet. Maybe he's okay with my sin. No. To show you how not okay with your sin he is, Jesus died on the cross, was brutally tortured and bled out for your sin, to pay the price for your sin. But you don't get the benefit of that until you call out to him in faith until you trust in Jesus and put your hope in him and say, God, I, I, I receive that free gift. I receive your death in my place. But if you don't do that, that wrath that poured out on Jesus will pour out on you. You will get the opportunity to pay your own price for your own sin, and that breaks God's heart. It says, for he loved the whole world. That includes you that he sent his son. That if you would believe in him, you would be saved. You would not perish, but have everlasting life. And God just pleads with you. And I know some don't like that word, but it's, please, let me save you. Because without the salvation, I will judge you. But what we see here at the end of tribulation is this judgment pouring forth, the full wrath of God finalized. And the planet is radically changed. It's radically affected. It's, it's remodeled. It's rearranged, if you will. There are some that even see this radical rearranging of the earth as, as God preparing the earth for the millennial kingdom that he is about to establish as he is going to touch down on earth. We have these massive global earthquakes. It tells us that cities are leveled. It tells us that islands are moved, that mountains are flattened. We're reading about the atmosphere continuing to be changed and affected with thunder and lightning, and, 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 and something happens in the atmosphere to the point that results in 100-pound hailstones falling from the sky. You ever been hit by a hailstone? But the little ones hurt, right? The little ones hurt. They wreck your car. They break your windshield. 100 pounds? Crazy. It's like I said earlier, it's like Jesus taking back the place that he originally built and doing some demolition so that he can restore it to what it was before we gave away the title deed and ruined it all. And this restoration could be a return to pre-flood conditions. Some commentators see that, that, that the earth is going to be restored to a pristine condition for this thousand-year reign of Christ, right? Um, we, we get that from this. It says there's earthquakes and islands moving and mountains disappearing. 
You guys remember what happened in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 during the flood? I'll read a verse to you. Chapter 7, verse 11. It says, On that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. It's believed that before the flood, there was this canopy, this vapor canopy that was around the earth that created pristine conditions that blocked UV radiation from the sun, that made it so perfect that it allowed humans to live to a 1,000 years old, which was the lifespan during those early years. And it says that during the flood, water came from below, that the vast watery depths burst open. There were streams, fountains in, underneath the earth that burst open, and water came forth. And then... The canopy, this, this, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the water came from below and above, and it flooded the entire earth. It says that the water surged, and it surged to the point that later on in Genesis it says the mountains covered as waters surged above the highest mountains by more than 20 feet. Now, in other translations, that, that phrase, vast watery depths, is fountains of the deep. So there's just like springs of water, if you will, fountains that burst, burst open. Now, um, there's, there's some conjecture on this. But when I read stuff like that, and, and you look at science, and you look at continental uh, tectonic plate shifting and stuff, you know, some of you have read some of this, but it's pretty widely accepted that at one point all the continents were together, and it was this massive supercontinent called Pangaea. You guys ever heard of that? And when you study plate tectonics, they like know that continents are shifting and moving. But at one time, it appears that they might have been one supercontinent together, all connected. I think Genesis 6 and 7, when the flood happened, is likely when the continents we know today were formed. That's a personal opinion. I believe that's possibly when Pangaea was broken apart and the continents were forced apart as this water burst up through known, shoved tectonic plates apart. Speculative, I understand, but that's, that's my personal uh, opinion. But since then, the earth has just been, been active with earthquake activ activity all over the earth as these tectonic plates continue to shift and move. Why? Why has there been earthquake activity from then until now? Because we live on an unstable earth. We live on an unstable earth that's not destined to last. As we're seeing here in the seventh, seventh bowl, the final judgment here, we live on an earth today that is destined to, to, to break up again and, and move and shift. As it says, the islands flee and the mountains disappear. What is that describing? Some massive geological shifting is going to take place. And some even say the effect on the weather with the lightning and the hell and all this stuff, it, 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 it's going to ultimately result in, in that vapor canopy being restored. And, and people aren't going to die like they do now, and lifespans are going to be expand, uh, expanded, and things are going to go back to pre-flood conditions. You know, they, again, speculative, but there are ideas here that something is changing radically upon the earth. But regardless of how you see all that, I see that Jesus is stepping in and rearranging the living room. He is stepping in and repainting and renovating. I think it's going to result in no more rifts and fault lines. Everything's going to be exactly how he wants it. 
then there's going to be this thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And then after the thousand years, it tells us that, yeah, he recreates, recreates it all together when there's a new heaven and a new earth. Hallelujah, I can't wait for that. But verse 19, it mentions the great city. The great city is split into three parts. What city is this? There's a couple ideas. Some people go, well, it's Babylon. Babylon is a city that's split into three parts because, well, it's mentioned right there in the verse, right? The city is split into three parts, um, and the cities of the nations fell, and then it says Babylon the Great was remembered. So people go, of course, it's referring to Babylon. Um, Additionally, Babylon is referred to as the great city in Revelation 18.10 and 16 and 18 through 19, verse 21, a whole bunch of places. Um, You'll see verses like, whoa, whoa, to the great city as it's talking about Babylon. So that's one interpretation. Another interpretation people have is that the great city is Jerusalem. And the reason they think that is because if you look at verse 19, some read it as making a distinction between the great city and Babylon. If you go back to it, it says the great city, and then it says, and the Gentile nations, and then it talks about Babylon. So people read it as making a distinction between the two. And again, they'll go back to uh, earlier in Revelation when we had the story about the two witnesses and they were murdered and their bodies were left to rot on the street. It said that they were left to rot on the streets of the great city where where Jesus was crucified. Well, we know where Jesus was crucified, right? Jerusalem. So, and then on top of that, Zechariah has a prophecy that when Jesus returns and his feet set down upon Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives, it tells us that the Mount of Olives will split in two from the west to the east. Well, if you look at a map, the Mount of Olives is directly west of Jerusalem. And if the mountain splits in half and the split goes west and east, one of those splits is going to directly go through the city of Jerusalem. And so some see that there's going to be some type of great earthquake there that, that causes this geological trauma. There's a split, and then the city then splits into three parts as a result of this, and on and on and on. And that ties into another prophecy in Zechariah where it says that there were water flowing from Jerusalem all the way down to the Mediterranean and all the way down to the Dead Sea. And then during the Millennial Kingdom, there's going to be fishermen in the Dead Sea. And so people go, yeah, there's going to be a split and the city's going to be broken apart as a part of this. So um, again, I don't know either way, right? I personally lean towards Jerusalem, but you know, I won't make a case for that to, to die on. So, uh, But It says, then 100-pound hailstones fall from the sky. So the very last thing God does, the last element of his wrath, the last bit of activity of of God's judgment, the last moment, if you will, are these big hailstones, these big blocks of ice falling from the heavens. And you say, why is that the last thing? Why, Why hailstones? Why not more meteorites? Why not balls of fire, right? Isn't that how God judged in the Old Testament? Fire, right? But why, why hailstones? Well, you go back to the Old Testament. What was the penalty for blasphemy? It's being stoned to death. Having large, heavy rocks cast upon you, crushing you to the point where you die. And so God is going to do that very thing rightfully. Because as we read, read here, even in the judgment, man is still blaspheming God. So let's close with verse 15 real quick. I want to jump back to that. This is Jesus speaking. He says, look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. This is a comment. Like as, as John is seeing this vision, it's being revealed to him. It's like Jesus just jumps in and makes a, a quick commentary, 
regarding what he is seeing. You know, the coming of Jesus Christ is often compared to the coming of a thief. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. It says, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. And what does he mean by using this phrase, like a thief in the night? Well, what do you think about when you think of a thief in the night? It's not someone who knocks on the door and says, Hi. Right? About a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, my mom's car got stolen from in front of our house. Thief in the night. Right? They didn't show up and say, excuse me, I'm going to take your car for a joyride. We'll leave it in Santa Ana. Pick it up in a couple weeks. No, they didn't tell us that. Right? The idea, and we got the car back, by the way, praise God. So, um, but the thief in the night, it's, it's the idea that it's the arrival of something sudden, something you're unprepared for, something that, that could be even dangerous, and you go, wow, Jesus coming like a thief in the night, something unprepared for? That doesn't sound very comforting. It's not meant to be comforting, all right? The idea of Jesus coming like a thief in the night, this is for unbelievers. This is for those that don't know him. You see, Jesus never comes as a thief for those who belong to him. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, you know that the day of the Lord, and this is referring to the tribulation time period, will come just like a thief in the night. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say, when they, speaking of non-believers, say peace and security, when they think everything is okay, when they think all is well, destruction will come upon them. And then in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, but you, brothers and sisters, speaking of the saved, you're not in the dark for this day or this time period to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. For the church, Jesus doesn't come as a thief. He comes as a bridegroom. Now it says, be ready for him to come, but he doesn't come as something dangerous, something that's trying to take something from you. He comes as a bridegroom. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for the believers, we are waiting and watching for him because he's going to return. We don't know exactly when he's going to return. So yeah, it could be a sudden thing, but the idea is we're expecting it. We're not doing like the world does and the world will do during tribulation and say there is no God, there is no return, there is no judgment coming. It's never gonna happen. We're expecting it. We're ready and waiting for him to take us to himself and the coming of this time of judgment upon the world will will take the world completely off guard. They will have no idea and not be ready for it. And it's just sad because after all the treaties and all the peace accords and all the UN humanitarian efforts, The world's going to think, we're making the world a better place. We're making the world a better place. We're making it good. We're making it all it should be. And then it all falls apart very rapidly in the span of seven years, very suddenly, just when they think all is well. And what does Jesus say here as John is watching the conclusion of all of this? He steps in and he goes, look, blessed is the one who is alert, the one who is watching the one who is waiting, the one who is dressed, clothed in righteousness, right? Blessed is the one who is ready that they wouldn't be ashamed, but they would be ready to go when their Lord shows up to call them home, taken away, saved from all this tragedy, all this wrath, all this devastation. 
As John is seeing the end, and he's seeing the worst war ever, and he's, he's seeing the final judgment of God, and Jesus steps in and says, yeah, praise God you're not going to experience any of that. Praise God you are saved from that. In 1 John 2.28, it tells us, so now little children, remain in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. That's the mandate we live under today as Christians. We're looking forward to his coming. But how do you get to this place of having confidence and not being ashamed at him at his coming? It's, it's living for him today. It's living in obedience to him today. That's, that's how you walk in this place, live in this place of having confidence. That when Jesus shows up with the shout, with the trump and says, come home. You're not like, oh, shoot, I'm in the middle of this sinful thing. How do you make sure you're not in the middle of that sinful thing? You just strive to live in obedience to him. You just study his word. You pray, you worship. You say, God, I want my life to glorify you, and you just endeavor to do what he's calling you to do. All the while watching and waiting and expecting and anticipating the day when we're caught up into the clouds, as it says, to meet the Lord into the air or meet the Lord in the air, prior to his wrath falling upon the earth. So judgment is coming. We know that. What we've been studying and looking at in Revelation is, is yet future. We've been seeing this vision that John has given. It's very detailed. It's, it's very graphic. It's nothing anybody can prevent. But it is something you can escape. It is something you can avoid. Paul said to the Thessalonians, Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. But so many scoff and dismiss and wave off any talk of coming judgment as ridiculous. That's just silly. That's just Christian propaganda. It's fairy tales that the church tells. And that's exactly why they're going to be caught off guard. That's exactly why they're going to be caught off guard. This is exactly why judgment will come upon them as a thief one day. And I believe one day will be pre uh, preceded by, where did all the Christians go? They are just suddenly gone from this earth. And yeah, I think people are going to be like, aliens, UFOs, or some other silly ways to, to describe it. But God forbid by this time, this tribulation time, that people's hearts are, aren't so hardened against Jesus, so hardened against truth, that when that time comes, they simply cannot, will not repent, even in the face of judgment. This whole book, Revelation, has been pointing to and warning of God's judgment against sin, his judgment to come on sin for generations. It's been pointing to that. Sure, we, we talk a lot about and focus on now today. You know, it, it's been pointing to the cross where God the Father placed his judgment of sin on Jesus, the Son of God. That place where Jesus suffered and died um, for you and me. That place where he said, it is finished. I have paid your price. I have died for your sin. Trust me for salvation. But it's also been pointing to what will come for those who reject that, to the judgment that will fall upon the earth that will fall upon those on the earth who have sinned, where God will one day say, you want to pay your own price for sin, it is done. You have a choice. If you don't know Jesus today, you have a choice. Make the right one. 
Make the wise one. Choose grace. Choose mercy. Choose forgiveness. Choose salvation for all the sin that you've done. Choose to be saved from the penalty to come for all the sin that you've done. Choose the shelter of Jesus Christ. Choose to, to, to be safe in the one who took all the wrath for you. That you would avoid the full wrath to come on all those who don't have that protection. That you would be protected by the salvation found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for our salvation. Lord, we know your judgment is coming upon this earth. And God, it's hard not to want to see that come quicker, Lord, when we look around and we see things like child trafficking and other horrors that are taking place on this planet. It's hard, Lord, not to get eager for you to come drop judgment upon those who would murder children, who would terrorize others, who would take hostages and kill them. But Lord, even in that, we trust your wisdom. We trust your timing. We trust your will. Because Lord, we know there are still people here on this earth that don't know you, that need to know you. There are people, Lord, that need to hear the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ before judgment comes, that they too would be saved. And you're calling us to be a part of that work. So help us, Lord, to be bold and to share our faith to study that we would understand your will and your word, that we would be willing and ready to pass out a gospel tract if, if that's what you want us to do, to have a conversation if that's what you want us to do. But regardless, Lord, that we would live as obedient people, knowing that, that how we live for you is also a part of our witness. And Lord, may we be diligent in doing this because we know the time is coming, God when you're going to take your church out of this world and you're going to begin a process, a seven-year process, Lord, of pouring out your wrath upon sin. And even in that, God, you're going to provide evangelists and witnesses that people can still get saved during that time. And Lord, we pray for those that don't know you that their hearts would not be so hardened against God and so hardened against truth that they would resist you to the point of death. But instead, Lord, we pray, God, that you would just do that work, plowing the field of their heart, that the seed can be planted, that the seed could be watered and the seed can be harvested, that the fruit would be souls saved to the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these warnings, God, that they would be motivation for us to get out into the field because the harvest is ready, Lord. That we would be a faithful church in doing what you've called us to do, to preach the gospel, support the gospel, proclaim the gospel, do everything we can that the gospel would go forth, Lord. We love you. We thank you, God. Help us to never take our salvation for granted, but to live in just abject gratitude. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.